This is In the News from the Irish Times. I'm Bernice Harrison. The teenage years are notoriously difficult, but for young people today, the challenges are different than ever before. While the legacy of the pandemic, with its enforced isolation, relentless screen usage, school closures and lack of socialisation, has not been fully measured, adolescent psychotherapists such as Dr Coleman Nocter has noticed definite and troubling trends among Irish teenagers. Teenage years where there's such a steep trajectory, uh, I've undoubtedly believed that that has impacted on most of them and they are reeling from it for sure. With Jen Hogan, Irish Times parenting columnist, he explores the rise of bullying, post-pandemic isolation, the role of social media in teenage lives and what parents can do to help. Jen, it seems that around the world rates of teenage depression have increased, that teens meet up with each other less and they're online more. You know, they're sleeping less. We've seen studies about that. Now, like, is it just me or has the level of concern or worry about our teenagers and their well-being increased in recent times? I suppose we're a lot more aware, which is a really good thing. You know, we're, we're more aware of mental health. We're more aware of um, the sort of things that impact our young people. And especially as we came out of the pandemic, I suppose there was a lot of questions about what sort of impact did it have? What sort of effect did it have? And there was a lot of conversations during the pandemic because we were trying to predict how it would all turn out. And now that we're, I suppose, back to... Uh, Things are a lot more normal in some regards, but in other regards, we're hearing obviously that teenagers aren't engaging with their peers the same way that they were before. A lot of the habits that maybe were established over the course of the pandemic where teenagers were online more, it, it was very unnatural. We went down the road of telling our teenagers to be online more instead of pulling them away like we had been doing beforehand. So you write about parenting issues here mm -hmm. at the Irish Times and you recently spoke to Dr. Coleman Nocter to get a, a professional view about this, if you like. So, but who is he and what specifically did you want to talk to him about? So Dr. Coleman Nocter is a child and adolescent psychotherapist and so he's dealing, he, he lectures also in the area of uh, mental health and psychology and he he also, I suppose, is he works with young people all the time. So he's seeing firsthand what their experiences are. I would say for young people at the moment, the biggest issue is pressure and expectation. And they're the focal point of a lot of families and schools around academics and sports and achievement. Um, but I think there is another element of teen social and emotional development that is being just missed. That opportunity for social and emotional connection and growth is really where I would see the biggest gaps. And, you know, although the pandemic button has been unpaused and we've you know recalibrated to some extent, it, it's only fair to say a lot of young people have responded brilliantly to that and really have gone, once it's resumed, they've managed it really well, but there are a lot who are struggling. And I do a lot of talks in schools in the recent weeks and months, and there's a teacher's parents are very concerned about a lot of young people, higher levels of absenteeism, uh, real struggle to reintegrate, and really struggling to, I think, pick up where they left off. And from the point of view of when you pause development, it's not something that you will notice in the immediate moment. It's only when it's under pressure or when it gets tested, which is oftentimes later, that those gaps or those missteps will be visible. And when you talk about developmental delay, are you talking about, I suppose, 16-year-olds who might be more in line with what you might expect from a 14-year-old and that kind of a gap? Or it, what, what do you mean exactly? The social and emotional piece is 
that kind of laboratory of life lessons where they kind of pick up from being around each other. Um, it's kind of a maturity or a wisdom that, you know, inherently builds up. It's very, it's not tangible. It's not terribly measurable. Um, but to give you an example, like I coach uh, a teenage football team and while these guys know what to do and they know the skills, they don't have an, a knowledge of the game in the same way as others. They look to the adults for decisions to be, they don't seem to have an autonomy within themselves to be able to do that. They also, I think there's a real loneliness within that group, and especially boys, I think the ages of kind of 14 to 16. These were young lads who pre-pandemic would have gotten, they'd come from the kind of playdates and sleepovers where parents were really highly involved in orchestrating their social worlds, and then they were expected to be second and third years and to try and do that themselves when they would have come through you know, being masked and social distancing and everything else, they missed out on those steps. And so when you skip those steps, you're going to see the the fallout. And I see the fallout in a lot of lonely teenagers where there is an appetite to want to meet up but have no skill set or ability to do that. So you're talking to teenagers all the time who are saying, I would love to meet up with my friends at the weekend, but I don't know how to do that. And I don't know how to get that going. And a lot more young people who just see their friends in school or just see their friends in sporting, formalised, adult-led situations, but not in that kind of free, informal space where I believe they... They do the most important growing, to be honest, is when they're left up to their own devices. And ironically, devices have become the medium for their communication. So they might use their headsets and things over gaming and they might, you know, communicate from their own bedrooms. um, And we're seeing more communication reliant on that. But from the point of view of the face-to-face social and emotional, really just exposure to each other through their own life experiences, um, that would really be the gap that I would see is the most glaringly obvious one. Mm. We heard actually, funny enough, I was speaking to teachers as well about this recently and they said they've seen a, a real lack of motivation in teenagers now in school, talking about the likes of the high levels of absenteeism and and things like um, lack of engagement and they're, they're noticing it too within school. Like Around motivation, is that something that teenagers should expect them to do for themselves or is that something maybe that parents need to give an L push in? Yeah, I think as as human beings, we're motivated by two things, desire or fear, you know. Um, and I don't know whether the desire is very strong at the moment. Uh, and that that's not uh, unaffected by the prevalent stories in our media, which are very kind of defeatist and gloomy and inflations and everything else. But what I, it's important to know that teenagers and younger people have lived a far more proportion of their life in an unprecedented time. So they've had three one-in-a-century events in terms of climate crisis, global conflicts, and a pandemic in the space of the last three years. So many of them are braced for the next disaster. So they're just waiting for the next one because they've spent such a high proportion of their life in that. You know, as us, as older adults, we have a a few chapters before that to reflect on, and we know that maybe the last number of years aren't reflective of life, but to younger people, that's what it is. And so the apathy comes from, what's the point? You know, I don't care. Um, And so... It's almost their fear, desire, because they're only going to be disappointed. Um, And they're not motivated by desire because we're probably not selling a lot of hope at the moment around what their futures could be. Now, bullying is, of course, a massive, massive issue. And social media 
is a new factor in bullying, how bullying works and the impact. And we, we've seen a pretty horrible example of that lately. With the serious assault of a 14-year-old boy in County Meath, the attack which happened in Navan on Monday afternoon was filmed and posted on social media. Three other so what did Coleman say about that? And how does he see social media working in terms of bullying? He mentioned, I mean, Coleman spoke about, I suppose, the new impact that, that social media has. It's a new way, I suppose, to, to bully. It's a new way, way to access our teenagers too. You know, before you came home, you closed the door and you could shut off the world away from you. Now that's not the case. Take bullying from years ago. You were restricted to the bus, school, or whenever you were in face-to-face contact with the people who you were perpetrators. The biggest difference is that that is now, you know, 24-7. And so the level of persecution that someone has to experience, there's no respite from it. Um, And the idea around feeling the need to check what people are saying about you. And it's a similar, we would have had, growing up in the 80s, we would have had exclusion and there'd be people who would be mean to other people when we were in school. But the capacity and the avenues for being mean to people are so much more plentiful now. Um, But exclusion would be, for me, one of the biggest challenges where... You know, a group of three and then to set up a WhatsApp group or a Snapchat group and leave somebody out. And there's people going online and seeing that everyone's over in Jen's house and Jen didn't invite you and, you know, all mm-hmm. of that sort of stuff. So and that's much harder to deal with because it's, you know, in the case of Navin, you've got clear perpetrators and there's kind of physical attacks, whereas this is much more subtle uh, and can be much more challenging. But for me, that whether that comes under the, the stat of bullying, I think sometimes we miss the exclusion piece. But for me, that's one of the major instances in terms of why many young people end up coming to see me. And I would mm-hmm. safely say 80% of the young people who see me have a history of bullying. And it's also really, I think, very difficult to communicate with teenagers the idea because that if you put something up online, it's there forever. Mm -hmm. The internet just doesn't go away. It's it's not time limited. So it's not that that Navin video, for example, that's there. And that's really hard. And, you know, God, even uh, even as a parent, I know that battle myself, even to reminding your teenagers that when they put things out there about that responsible usage of social media. And it's something that parents repeatedly say to me, they're horrified. Sometimes they'll go, they might do a spot check on their teenager's phone and they'll look at something they've put out there and they're trying to have those conversations. But getting that message across to teenagers that this is forever. If you put that out there, like you said, that video's there forever. But other mistakes that they make, you know, in the past, you made a mistake you cringed, you were upset, you dealt with the consequences, you moved on. That's there forever. And these things have a habit of coming back to haunt us. And perhaps people are less likely to um, allow for maybe context and age and immaturity and all that in the future. So you have to be very mindful of what you're putting out there, both in terms of for yourself and also for whoever it is that you're putting out there, um, information out there about. But like if you look at Twitter, and we I mean, we spoke about Twitter, I spoke to Coleman about Twitter. Twitter is that kind of perfect example of where people throw stuff up and they say, all sorts of things and they don't think of the consequences. You forget about the real person who's behind the, the handle. You forget about the real person who's reading it and you put it out there and those tweets are out there and they're put out there in the heat of the moment and it's grown-ups doing this a lot of the time. It's grown-ups putting this sort of content out there. I think as adults we've lost a lot of credibility in terms of our position, in terms of knowing what's good for people and not because the hypocrisy isn't lost on them. For years we said, you know, come off your device and go outside. And then we said, come inside and go on your device. And now we're saying, come off your device and go outside. And there's a sense of, make up your mind. Do you know what I mean? You know, which is which. But as a consequence of COVID, because we all migrated online, 
the virtual village is so much bigger than the actual village that exists and there's there's much more happening there so it's almost making that more attractive place for young people to be at the cost of having no physical community or or locality but in terms of the the shareability of something online is has become taken precedence over the experience so the idea of something's value is in its share worthiness so the more extreme it is or the more sensitive it is, then the more shares it will get. Um, and what young people are growing up in a world is what is most popular is most shared, and that's not the same as what is most true. Do you know what I mean? So, and, and, and again, I think there's a disinterest in moderate truth. Uh, I think it's much more likely to get, you know, you know um, a kind of uh, a rubbish example would be, you know, something that is untrue is gets twice around the world before the truth can get its pants on to use someone else's expression. But the idea of taking incidents like the incident of the attack, um, almost that would have to be at that level to get the shareworthiness. Do you know what I mean? So from the point of view of, because sharing is a principle of that, you have to, the, the event has to be up in the up the ante to get that shareability. And also the impact, and, and again, there's a young lad in the middle of all this we can't forget, but the like I know young people who've had that thing of them being recorded, whether it be fighting or, you know, being in a compromising position or whatever it might be, and it was all very staged. They can't even move schools because the twenty six schools within a twenty mile radius of their home have all seen this video. So it's not like, you know, we'll move you out and go down the road. Because that communication is so pervasive, it almost has an indelibility that it's always going to be there and it's also got that kind of uh, fatalism of, well, I can't move anywhere because everyone else knows. Um, but again, because of the, the nature of online being so extreme, then we're seeing a higher level of extreme behavior. Another thing, and I would say, you know, post-pandemic, we're seeing a rise in hostility, aggression, disgruntlement, and that's across the board. You talk to anyone who works in retail, they'll tell you that people are more short-tempered. And you know that, whether that's being cooped up for so long and, and whether there's a frustration in that or whether it is the state of the world or whatever it is. Um, young people are feeling that frustration too and I, by no means that's not an excuse but it might explain some of the the more pervasive or prevalent scenes that we would have seen and we've seen two in the last week of attacks on teenagers. But uh, I mean, people have classed that as bullying. For me, that's not. That's above that. That's an assault. Um, uh, and, and from that point of view, you would like to see that the the sanctions and the, the adults in the room act you know, accordingly to, to what that type of behaviour deserves. So do we need to be setting a better example, Coleman? I suppose, like, if you look at Twitter and look at or some of our of adult use of social media, we're not setting the best of examples there. Yeah, I think we have this kind of notion of the kids and their screens and they're so irresponsible, uh, and that's a convenient truth rather than an actual truth. Some of the most immature behaviour are people in their 40s and 50s online, and you can see how it is a very hostile place, and that's regardless of age. Do you know, So when we have young people in a Snapchat group you know, saying horrible things to each other, we have to hold our mirror up and say, well, how are we viewing that? Even if we're you know, recording our children coming down to open their Christmas presents on a Santi morning and sharing that, that's kind of saying that the share is more important than the experience too. You know, the idea of... Uh, something shareworthiness again becomes more valued. We're role modeling that, and to you know to say to a child, don't share things and don't film things when you're doing it all the time yourself, and and you know to tell them to come off their device while you're answering emails over breakfast. It is like saying you know you have your porridge, I'm going to have a packet of crisps. 
Yeah, but as parents, I think we now try to impose a great deal of control on mm. our kids. We do. And that's that's on us, isn't it, really? Mm. It's that fear. Like, there is that that fear as parents if we get it wrong. The most important job in the world, we can cope with other things going wrong and making mistakes elsewhere. But when it comes to parenting, we want to get it right. And we do try to control things in a very unnatural way. And some of it is because we can, I suppose. Uh, other parts of it, we're completely oblivious to the level of control we have. We, we, we overestimate it, maybe. Perhaps we think by putting parental controls on their devices and things that we are stopping them from harm. And we're forgetting about, you know, that these kids are way ahead of us, streets ahead of us when it comes to technology. Trying to manage your child's navigation of the world by trying to control the technology that they use is futile because uh, it's not bad technology, it's bad usage. So my concentration has always been you work with your child, not what you work with the device. Do you know what I mean? So, um, you know, there's no... You know, app for your lap, if that makes mm -hmm. any sense. You know, you have to use that and invest in that time. And and again, you know, I, I would make the comparison. Buying a child a device is like buying a puppy. You know, the work only starts there. It's not the end of it. And so, you know, the idea around how do we teach children to have good relationships with technology, that's the key part to it. Because if they... Uh, start off on the right road, they'll have a better relationship with it than if they don't. And sometimes I think we either have, like, there, there's no devices and we're going to keep you from having a phone in your hand till you're 16, which I think is ambitious, uh, or else there's, like, look, you're eight, have it and come back to me if you have a problem. And neither of those are necessarily right. And, and our approach to technology is either you come from a responsibility-based focus or a rights-based focus. So from the point of view of you have to earn the responsibility so we prohibit them and it's a very high ban sort of thing or everyone has the right to technology so we'll just educate and awareness. There's limitations to both of those approaches. So again, it seems to me that you judge when your child is ready depending on the child, mm. not depending on arbitrary things like their age or whether they are going to secondary school or not. It really is when they show you that they have that responsibility. My guidance has always been start tight and loosen as you go um, and by building up that idea of them being able to have responsibility in that space, then they earn more autonomy as they go rather than the other way around. And that's tricky. But uh, again, that's the investment that is necessary. So the parents check teenagers' phones then and watch what's going on. Is that how they find out what yeah, the difficulty as, as is? Yeah, as they go, I think you need to have a high level of visibility in the, in the early stages of somebody getting a device. And that's where the coaching happens, you know, mm -hmm. in terms of... You know, if you're teaching your child to drive, you don't just give them the keys and say, we'll see you later. You know, you go with them a little bit and you'll drive them for a little bit. And as they show a capacity to to be more competent, then you'll become less involved and you'll, and they, if they're showing they're responsible on the road and they're not speeding and they're, you know, taking time, that it might be allow you to step back quicker than someone who maybe isn't that. And so the idea around we have to coach children into the world, it's media literacy, mm. uh, and we have to teach them how to do that. But I, as I say, I would prefer my child to learn how to drive while I was in the passenger seat rather than going away for the weekend and they take the car behind my back. What did Coleman say about, you know, what teenagers need now? What, what, what does he think we should do to help them navigate the world a bit better? He thinks that we really should look at, I suppose, creating the space for, for them and, that, and not box ticking as well. He talked about well-being a little bit and we do well-being in school and a lot of us will be familiar with that. But rather than box ticking, create those um, situations for connection, create the, that environment for connection. So um, he was talking at one stage about coaching and how he was coaching a, te a teenage group and they were having the crack and he was just watching them engage 
speech and interact with each other. And then they were called in to do the drills and do the usual thing that happens during football. And while that's obviously great for their development as football players and uh, the development within sport, it, he said the actual original interactions where they were ha- just freely playing and chatting and talking to each other and just having general banter, that was more beneficial. And that's what we need to do. We need to create the opportunities for young people to come together again and to mix and to develop and to navigate all the different situations of of connections and romance and all those different normal things face that to go face. face to face away from the virtual world. It's about these young people having an opportunity to make up for lost time. We have to sell face to face contact to young people. Do you know, I was at training the other night and uh, it was the first 10 minutes the lads were kicking a ball and having the chats and having the crack and then the adults myself included came in and we pulled them all into a huddle and said right now shush lads now drills and we're going to do this and we're going to do that in hindsight 10 minutes of drills and 50 minutes of them kicking around would have been better for their social and emotional development wouldn't have been doing for their technical mm-hmm. skills in football but we almost have to create that space and as parents we have to see a value in that space rather than just valuing our children's progress by their grades and how many days in school they go in and and what they don't struggle in, uh, I think it is about opportunity. That's it for today. For Jen Hogan's parenting columns, subscribe at irishtimes.com forward slash subscribe. I'm Bernice Harrison. This episode is produced by Declan Conlon. In the news, we'll be back soon.